Hello and welcome to SSCS Chip Chat, where we talk to the people behind integrated circuits. My guest today is Dr. Alice Wang. Dr. Wang is Director of Silicon Engineering at Psychic. She is also Vice Chair of Women in Circuits at SSCS. We talk about extremely low power circuits, different work cultures in the U.S. versus Asia, and how to get more women in circuits. But before we get to that, I have a request for you. Please tell us what you thought about the show and how we can make it better. The email is chipchat at fastmail.com. Also, if you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it and leave a review on iTunes. Dr. Wang, welcome to PSSCS Chip Chat. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm really honored to be invited. Uh, we like to hear from interesting engineers, so thanks for making time for us. So as I understand, you grew up in uh, Long Island, and you got an early start in science. Could you tell us about that? I'm sure. So I grew up in Long Island, going to public school, and uh, my dad was an electrical engineer, and um, and but unfortunately, I didn't really know what electrical engineering was or engineering at all. And so I thought, you know, maybe he worked on a train or he, you know, or I knew he worked in front of a computer a lot. Um, and then that's kind of unfortunate because in the grade school at that time, there's not a lot of exposure to engineering. So, you know, I took bio and chemistry and, and physics. And so only um, during my senior year, uh, when I was taking calculus and physics, I started doing really well. And somehow I can, you know, do those two subjects better than the other subjects. So then I pretty much decided, okay, I'm going to be a physicist. <laughs> and that's that's how I kind of fell into uh, like STEM, like science and technology, it just in that decision. Wow. So you, you actually intended to become a physicist in senior year. Yes. But you're not a physicist anymore. What happened? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so what happened was, um, well, I was applying to schools yeah. and when you go, when you live in the Northeast and you're, you know, in the top in honors, you tend to apply to all the Ivy Leagues. You want to go to Harvard or Yale, Princeton. Um, and so I applied and I got into Princeton early and I was really like thrilled because, you know, that's what like, Edison was, you know, Einstein. So I said, I'm going to do physics there. Um, and I also applied to MIT. It was top school. And it was, I remember getting in, I was like, oh, mom, I got in, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like a big to do. Um, but what really sold me on MIT was that I went for the campus preview weekend. And um, some of the students were staying up with us chatting until 3 a.m. in the morning. And they're like, oh, I have some paper due, but still they were talking to us. And I thought, wow, this place is really fun, and it must be really easy if they can do that. <laughs> so that sold me, and turns out it was it's really fun. Like, that part was right, but the really easy part was totally wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it was really hard, but still was, like, the best experience of my life, so I'm glad that I made that mistake. <laughs> Uh, oops, I yeah. went to MIT by mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oops. But then when I was there, um, turns out physics at MIT is yeah. a lot different than physics in public school. Yeah. So I realized after a few physics classes that, you know, my brain just doesn't think like theoretical physicists. 
And I took um, 6001, which is the first EE class. It's coding and list. And I just thought it was so fun. And I said, I want to do fun things. So I switched majors immediately after that. And yeah, <laughs> never looked back. <laughs> so 6001 is uh, struck as TIPC is, is the yes. course name. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, that's a, like, <laughs> list. nobody says, you know, Lisp is the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is so me. fun, a lot of parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of parentheses. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Uh, so you you actually stuck around in uh, MIT for a while. You you got your bachelor's, mm -hmm. your master's, and PhD over there. Yep. Yeah, so um, I did, well, I was really fortunate. I got to do a lot of internships in the summer. I was in the 6A. So at MIT, course 6 is WECS, and I was in the 6A program which pairs you up with a company and you can work at the company every summer starting sophomore year. And I was really lucky to get paired up with Bell Labs okay. at that time. So, so illustrious Bell Labs. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, I worked there and worked with some of the great people in spe speech recognition and acoustics. And, um, and basically though, I learned that working is really tough and a kind of a, a drain. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I, I want to just have fun. So I'm going to stay in school as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and I can work afterwards for like 40 years, you know, but yeah, yeah if I can stay in school, then I'm just going to stay. And so, um, so working kind of helped me realize that, but it was still a really good experience to get internship. Um, uh, during the summers when I was at MIT. Yeah, Bell Labs is an illustrious history. I think they were the ones to invent um, the transistor in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you yeah. weren't working on anything related to um, circuits <laughs> at Bell Labs. No, I was doing um, speech recognition. I was doing algorithm work. Yeah. And, and actually, a lot of the, the seminal speech recognition algorithms were developed there as well. Mm -hmm. And um, what I realized that I did my master's there because um, you can you can do your thesis as part of the 6A program. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, a lot of the great uh, algorithms were developed in the 70s and 80s. And, and I felt like doing speech rec recognition, it's gotten really good already. So you're just trying to get the last few percentages out. So I'm like, oh, this is like going to be a tough job. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I think hardware is more marketable skills. So I'm going to switch to hardware for my PhD. And so that last year, I happened to take um, 6.374, which is the digital DLSI class, um, which is being taught by Professor Ananta Chandrakesan. So I'm just going to call him Ananta because yeah. his name is so long. Um, <laughs> and after taking his class, I really hit it off with him. He was doing low power, and I rationalized that if I can do low power, I have versus like high power, hundred watt things. Low power, I'm more less likely to like accidentally kill myself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the worst thing is to just stop. Process. <laughs> yes, I mean this is kind of how I make life decisions, and you know, <laughs> low power. That's good. I think I can stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> but he was just such a cool guy and we really hit it off so that was the main reason why i decided to join his lab yeah professor chandrakarsan has a very uh well-known reputation in the field so i think you chose wisely there 
Yeah, turns out. So, <laughs> so you were doing your PhD in, um, as it said, low power uh, subthreshold. Mm-hmm. Yes. And subthreshold is where transistors should be off, but they're not quite off, but you somehow mm-hmm. make them work. Yeah, you had just enough current to turn to call it a one, you know, <laughs> you have yeah. just enough to switch it and it's below the, the threshold, which is usual to switch. Um, and I, I kind of decided to do that um, thesis. Um, before then, there wasn't any thesis doing subthreshold. Oh, wow. Okay. So it really is uh, one of the first um, that was in the super low voltage. And so uh, that came out of an internship that I did at IBM Research. And when I was doing the internship, I was studying Mark Harwood's paper. He had this great paper with contours of VDD and threshold and, and, you know, there's like these curves and I studied them. I built a circuit that made the same curves and, uh, and I plotted the first uh, minimum energy point, mm. you know, curve. Um, and um, so what, what's, what's a minimum energy point and how much, what kind of voltages are we talking about here? Oh. So it's the, so basically what happens with digital logic is that as you reduce the frequency, the power goes down because dynamic power goes to CV squared F. Um, but eventually what happens is that the frequency gets so slow um, once you cross the threshold that then the leakage starts becoming a bigger percentage of total power. So then, the, then you'll see the power coming back up because the leakage is oh, dominating. Okay. So it's really kind of the point where the leakage and dynamic cross. And that occurs, at least in, in my thesis, I was working in 180 nanometer. That occurred around 300 um, millivolts. Oh, wow, for, okay. And it, it does depend on, on the application. So, so, my, so when I decided to do this, you, know, you can't just, just try to operate at the minimum. You have to operate lower so you can prove that there's this minimum, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so at that time, after I did the internship, you know, I just went back to MIT. I was still doing my other thesis, which is not nearly as exciting. And then Ananta's like, well, you should change your thesis and do this. And I'm like, oh, man, that's going to add, like, a lot more time to my <laughs> thesis, you know? Um, and, but I thought, you know, you better go big, you know, or bust. And it's very risky, right? Who's, I mean, who's going to be able to operate at 100 millivolts or, you know, basically below the minimum yeah. energy point? And at that time, it hadn't been done. So I'm like, well, it could either be a really great thesis or a total failure. But I still decided to do that because I'm like, you, you want to be proud of your thesis. And yeah. then, so, <laughs> so, I, so I decided to switch my thesis. And then, you know, um, he still made me finish my first thesis. So I had to tape out that first. And then I had to do a second tape out for this. Oh, wow. And then, yeah. But yeah, that was af- after that point was probably the like hardest two years of my PhD, <laughs> just kind of getting all those out the door. Well, once you were done with your PhD, did you know what you wanted to do afterwards? Um, yeah, I, I knew I didn't want to do ac- academia. Um, well, I didn't, I knew that I didn't want to do that right away. I wasn't sure, mainly because I, I didn't like teaching that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and uh, so I wanted to pick a company which I can still be involved in the, in um, academics with, with universities and um, that has a rich 
uh, research um, aspects. And so I picked some companies that were larger um, and I'd interviewed uh, and gotten offers from Texas Instruments and from IBM. And these are two places where I did internships during the summer. And yeah, my, um, I was really fortunate to get to do internships because like when you're working in the summer, you make pretty much as much money as you do the rest of the year. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, but then you get these great um, network yeah. opportunities. So I got to work, um, or I got the offers from these two jobs. And it was a tough decision. Um, both are great opportunities. Uh, one was in New York, which would have been closer to my family because I grew up in Long yeah. Island. Um, and, but the Texas one was uh, was much more product de- development, and and I didn't know it at the time when I chose the Texas job um, was that the industry was just on the beginning of doing low power in products oh. and things like power switches, adaptive voltage scaling, dynamic DVFS, dynamic voltage frequency scaling hadn't been done before in products, although they had been done in research by Professor Chandrakasan, you know, yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. So it was exciting to join and to see some of the first products. Um, you know, it's before all these great CAD flows are available, especially verification. And, um, you know, the engineers I work with were, were trying to tape out the first 65 nanometer chip with power switches. And like they were hand checking the power switch grid, you know, like, those are the things they oh, had to do. Okay. 65 yeah. nanometer back in 2004? Uh, this or... wasn't, yeah, to, probably more like 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like very early days of 65 nanometer because I don't yes. think it went into production for a while after that. It was pretty early. Yeah. It was one of the first. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And TI used to be one of the bigger um, chip companies mm-hmm. back then. I think they were as big as Intel. Or, or they had close. their own foundry, yeah. their own digital foundry. And so I I don't remember. I think that one was still in the TI boundaries. Okay. Yeah. You got to work on interesting things over there. Did you um, uh, work with interesting people? Were there anything that stood out? Um, yeah, I um, I worked with a lot of really great engineers. Um, uh, my boss, Dr. Yuminko, um, he he hired me from MIT from MIT directly, and I got to work with him and. Um, I think we just got to work with great products, and um, yeah, the engineers at TI are really the top engineers. You know, I learned a lot about um, making products because in in school, you know, you can just get one chip to work. You can pretty much graduate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. But but at you know when you're in the mobile phone business, you know this is millions of parts that need to ship. So I learned from, you know, verification from, you know, you don't just write the RTL, you have to verify it, then how do you test it? And and then shipping volume of, of millions of parts. So, um, and TI just has such a great history of quality. And um, so I think, I mean, we I worked on the digital baseband of a lot of, um, a lot of parts, including OMAP, and so I think it really, it, it was a privilege to work with some of the best engineers I've ever met. Yeah, that sounds like a fun place to work on. So after TI, you went to uh, MediaTek, uh, which is a uh, 
Taiwanese competitor of Qualcomm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they were doing quite well for a while. Um, I'm not sure about current state of affairs over there, but I think they're still pretty big. Yeah, um, they're number one in, in many markets like uh, digital TV um, and in smartphone, um, currently number two. And um, when I joined MediaTek, uh, they were uh, looking for low-power experts. Um, they were just starting to enter the smartphone business. So uh, what MediaTek does great is when they enter a business, they pretty much dominate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but low power was relatively new to them, and um, they didn't have that expertise in in the headquarters. And um, so they had been talking to a lot of us at TI at the time. And so um, to me, it was a great opportunity to um, to to uh, to learn about Asian culture and working with Asia. I felt like a lot of great things are going on there, and to get an experience of of working in uh, Asian culture. And, you know, my parents are Taiwanese and my father moved back to Taiwan. So, so it would also give me a great opportunity to go there and travel and, and just be in Asia. So, um, so it was a no brainer at the time, you know, I get to still do low power for um, smartphones, but, um, but get a whole new context and kind of do it from scratch in a way. So yeah. it was, it was great. Yeah, uh, so TI uh, sometime later exited the OMAP business. I don't know if they were, I think they were still in, at the time, they were still doing that. Uh, yes, yeah. at the time, they were still doing the OMAP yeah. uh, application processor. Yeah. And I think a year later, then they decided to exit the business totally. And, and I don't think, I think MediaTek probably had some, uh, maybe had some to do it because a lot of companies did exit. Uh, Subsequently, I think Marvel. Yeah, it was a tough. There were a lot of players. (laughs) There's there's not enough uh, space for everybody in there. I think the market, the smartphones tended to get dominated by Qualcomm, and even uh, Broadcom had some success for a little bit, but even they quit the market. Mm -hmm. It's now Qualcomm, MediaTek, and then a bunch of other smaller companies Mm -hmm. now. I think. (laughs) Yes, but definitely do not count them out. So how was uh, so this was your first time in Taiwan though, right? Uh, or you actually had visited, maybe traveled, but not lived mm-hmm. there. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was fortunate because I did work out of their Austin site first. Okay. So the first two years of media, media tech was in Austin, building up a team there, doing high performance CPU uh, implementation and design, and also developing low power circuits. So that was great because, you know, um, I can kind of, get used to this new company, this new culture, and uh, build reputation. And then uh, after two years, then um, my boss, Ewing, who my boss from TI was also now my boss at MediaTek, he asked me if I wanted to do an expat in Taiwan in the headquarters. Mm. And again, it was an immediately yes, definitely. Um, it's I started building a list, like my bucket list, of cool things that, you know, I wanted to do. Um, and one of them is working outside of the U.S. Because huh? I, you know, I'm born and raised in the U.S. I've never really worked or lived outside. So I thought um, that would be great experience. So, so, and my dad is in Taiwan. So that was 
Yeah, so I decided to do that, and I spent about four years uh, working in Taiwan. Yeah, I, I work with, uh, so our company has two sites, one in Irvine and one in Taiwan, and I work frequently with uh, people from Taiwan. And the culture, work culture is very, very different. Uh, yes. Was that a big <laughs> adjustment for you? <laughs> I, I tend to work very hard. Um, yeah. So, so the, I think the hours I was okay with, but um, I think it's more of the uh, style that is very different yeah. between Asian and Taiwanese. And something that I wish I knew before I moved there, that the style of decision-making and yeah. authority is completely different. You know, in, um, in the U.S., it's quite flat. You know, you can call the CEO by his first name. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, But in Asia, like, because I became a director and they would call me Alice, sir. You know, like, <laughs> I'm like, I sh could I correct them and say, ma'am, uh, I'll just leave it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that hierarchy in, in Asia is so, um, yes. it's quite rigid. And, yeah. and, and so um, I decided not to try to become or to adapt myself. I actually wanted to be more Americanized. And bring that there because I feel like that's kind of my differentiation, something I can bring. And definitely some, um, it was for some people very tough, you know, when I would go and talk to the engineers directly and they were shocked why, why, why the director is talking to them directly, you know. <laughs> um, but I think eventually we all kind of got used to each other's style. Yeah, and it all worked out pretty well, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you then eventually moved back to U.S. still working for uh, MediaTek, right? Yep. And it's um, because I wanted to cross up another few things on my list. With, one is to live in California, which I consider, you know, it's the center where all engineers, you know, should go at some point. <laughs> it's like the Mecca of engineering. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get my California experience yet, so I need. I almost did. I almost because um, I did get into Stanford and Berkeley for grad school, but uh, then because I met Nanta, then I decided not to do that. So I'm like, okay, time for my California experience, and want to see what's so great about it. <laughs> Starting earlier this year, you were working for a startup, Psychic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, so I recently made the, the switch. I've only been in the company a few months. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just thought it would be great to experience a small company, a startup. Um, there's so many in Silicon Valley. And uh, I had worked in two very large companies previously. So And and um, I thought, if, this, if I'm going to do something risky like this, I got to do it. You know, sooner than yeah. later before I chicken out. <laughs> so, um, and I did uh, look around, um, mm -hmm. but I realized that you really do need to have a good fit. Uh, you need to find the right startup. And um, my very good friend, Ben Calhoun and Dave Wensloff, we all did our PhDs together. Ben and I wrote the first subthreshold book together. So our PhDs were, were pretty much um, very um, done in 
uh, at the same time. So he called me and he's like, uh, I have this job, you know, it's uh, basically in charge of the silicon team for the company. And um, I thought, well, you know, I know and trust um, them a lot. And so, you know, I decided to take that jump and join Psychic. So what does uh, Psychic do again? I went through the website and you guys mm -hmm. are doing some pretty incredible stuff threshold things. Yeah. No so batteries. No batteries, battery-less sensing, and it's for the industrial space. So imagine having sensors all over the factory and sending data um, about the how the factory is doing. And because it's doing energy harvesting, so from light or from heat, um, then the power that it's using has to be very low. So going back to sub-threshold, and um, so it's kind of like a full circle, you know, coming back to sub-threshold. Yeah. I, I didn't get to do that as much in my other yeah. opportunities, um, but it's really nice to come back and finally see it like almost a decade later, yeah. making it into a product. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually a coincidence. I was talking to uh, uh, Shantanu Chakravarti at uh, Was Washington University last week, or not last week, a couple of weeks ago, and he also does a lot of work in subthresholds. He has a couple of chips. Um, it was interesting that he has some products out to um, to do batteryless sensing as well. What kind of power are we talking about here for um, energy it's, harvesting? It's um, very much in the microwatt range. Okay. And it really does depend on the energy source and what kind of applications you're running, what kind of sensors. But if in the micro microwatt range is you yeah. know where we're aiming for. So really like sipping the power is what I'm saying. It's a landing <laughs> thing. <laughs> so you, not draining. Yeah, at, at this kind of power levels, I'm guessing you're not operating your your circuits at like 100% duty cycle. It's probably right. waking up if every once in yeah. a while and doing something and. Right. So it wakes up, it, it gets the sensor data, and then it uh, sends the data to a local control node and then goes back to sleep. We have radios, we have um, the energy harvesting uh, circuits, as well as a microcontroller that does local processing, so we don't have to transmit as much data. So yeah, it's heavily duty cycled, um, but also um, operating at a very low uh, voltage. So the entire chip is running at sub-threshold, or? Um, all the digital. All the is digital is, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. But then there are some things that might be using a charge pump or something to put. Uh, right, right. So we do have a, okay. um, we do have a circuit that yeah. provides voltages. Okay. Um, yeah. So recently you uh, have started another, uh, or joined another initiative uh, for women in circuits. Tell us about that. Sure. Under the IEEE SSCS, Solid State Circuit Society, uh, basically they have this ADCOM, which is an advisory committee that advises the whole society. And our society has about 10,000 members. And um, I and the president at the time, Jan van der Spiegel, he uh, realized that the percentage of women is quite low. We only have about 4% women in the society as members. And compared to other societies, IEEE, it's it's much lower. Other societies are in eight to ten percent. Oh well, uh, yeah. Anecdotally, I think it makes sense. I, I actually have met. I think I can count on my fingers the number of women circuit designers I've met. 
Uh, yeah. It's not that many. <laughs> not that many. <laughs> I don't know what how your experience in, in MIT was. Uh, were there a lot of women in circuits? Mm. Um, MIT, not that many not in that general. Many. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we wanted to figure out how we can change this okay. trajectory. And um, so Jan formed a committee called the Women in Circuits. And right now we're in the third year. Okay. Um, uh, first year, we did a lot of surveys where we tried to understand what did women want, what kind of services could we provide that really could help them and draw them. And the purpose is we want to retain and recruit and advance women. Yeah. And in the second year, I became the chair of mm -hmm. the committee, and I decided this is the year we're going to implement all these changes. Yeah. So what we, we do is we have um, networking events at all of the um, IEEE SSCS conferences like ISSCC, the LSI, SSERC. And we also had, for the first time this uh, past year, was our workshop at ISSCC. It was on Sunday night, open to the public. All of the speakers were women. Um, we didn't advertise it as a women's event. We just made it open. And we selected a theme of circuits for social good. And um, because one of the feedback from the survey is that sometimes uh, we don't really see circuits, the impact to society, and yeah. how does it really help people? It's really hard to feel that, and maybe it's a branding issue or something, but if you think about the reality is circuits are, you know, driving a lot of, of things going on in society and healthcare and, you know, our daily lives. Yeah. It's, it is driving a lot, so, yeah. so, but that link is very, is not very strong, so, and we see a lot of women going into, for example, environmental engineering or medical field, biomedical, or, and young people as well. So with that theme, we, just, uh, we did on Sunday night to make it also easy for students or anyone in the area to, to come. And we ended up having a great uh, list of speakers. We had Professor Teresa Meng. We had uh, Intel uh, fellow Naveen uh, Nassif. And we also had a few more junior women speaking, uh, uh, Esther Rodriguez and Christine Ho, who's an entrepreneur. And then at the end, we had roundtables. We called it uh, Talk to an Expert. So we had all of women in all different fields, like machine learning and security. And uh, we, we were actually able to have 300 um, people come to this evening session on Sunday nights, which is, is wow. quite a lot. Yeah, yeah wow. and pay for that. So, so I think we're really trying to um, to do to do many things you know, from top down, also bottoms up. We want to just show women doing technical things and being very active in all the conferences. But also, we want to uh, have networking events where we can coach and mentor and train and you know help uh, women more at the grassroots level. Yeah, certainly a worthy endeavor. I have a couple of uh, questions. One is, I think you said initially when you were in high school, you had no clue what engineering was. I don't know if, um, I think that is probably still true today. So that's that's probably a place to uh, get women interested in engineering and circuits in particular. Uh, these, I, I think just yeah. a lot of them don't think that this is a subject for them. Yes. And that's one effort we're starting this year. Um, yeah, okay. We do know a lot of uh, people who are 
maybe doing something in their own community. So we're going to try to build up a resource so that you can go to the local high schools and just talk about engineering. Yeah. Um, we have one woman, Marion, uh, who, who goes to the local high schools and she just says, answers, what is a chip? You know, yeah. <laughs> and just introduce them to the basic concepts that, you know, and, and yeah, I think at the high school level, um, a lot of, still a lot of uh, students don't even know what engineering is. I don't have that exposure. So I think is that would be one very rich area. Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask you is, suppose somebody is listening to this podcast and wants to do something for women mm-hmm. in circuits. Yeah. Uh, what should they do? Who should they talk to? Um, is there a... Uh, so we have a website. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, it's on the sscs.org website, and we are on that website, the Women in Circuits link. Okay. And you can contact any of the people um, uh, listed there, and we're very happy. We, our committee has 20-plus members, um, men and women, and I really feel like it's one of the most active and enthusiastic a bunch of people. Um, some of them are the most famous women in our field. So it's a pleasure to work with them. So we welcome anyone who is interested in helping um, and join the committee. Um, and yeah, so we're really happy if anybody wants to contact. You can contact me okay. um, as well. All right. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people Great. can Thank just click you. it and get there. So, um, you have hired a bunch of people over over your career um, in, in this company and in previous companies. What do you look for in an engineer? So suppose you're looking for uh, somebody who's just getting out of college and they want to find out what do I need to be a mark, you know, what do I need mm-hmm. to do to be marketable for a company? Mm-hmm. What advice would you give them? Um, so usually when I'm interviewing them, they've passed the technical you know, assessment. Um, And so what I'm looking for is really about more character, attitude, and match of culture. And I do a pretty rigorous interview. Um, I learned it from reading a book, which is called Who? Question mark. Okay. And and the idea is, is um, you only hire top talent. Yeah. And it, it is more of a drain on your organization if you don't if you hire a C player or a B player, so you should only hire A players. And um, so so I have, based on that book, I developed a pretty rigorous um, interview. Um, you go through the, the whole resume and you ask very specific questions. But at the end of that, um, I'm really interested to know in, you know, is, is it a good culture fit with me, with my company? Um, of course, things like integrity and honesty. And um, and there's one thing that I love personally is I love people who do automation. <laughs> I don't know why that always, <laughs> like people who can code and love coding, because I think I am not good at it, but I admire people who do coding. Hey, but um, You actually started with 6.001. <laughs> no, but I am... I would say I every time I try to write a Perl script, I'm like, my Perl script is so messy. And I see other people <laughs> who do it in a line, you know. So, And by the end of the interview, I pretty much 
can envision working with them on a day-to-day basis because I've walked them through their whole career and I get excited. I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to work with this person. So I can get a whole picture of this person in the workplace. And um, and yeah, by the end of the interview, I'm pretty either much like gung-ho, hire this person, they're a top talent, or like, eh, mm. too many red flags. <laughs> <laughs> so, but advice, I guess, to them is, you know, like um, interview is where you want to shine and you want to, so pull out all the stops, like all the creative things you've ever done, all your strengths, just pull them out and just wow the interviewer. Awesome. Um, so you're, you, as you said, you work pretty hard. Um, and we are actually recording this pretty late in the night. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, do you have any time for fun? Oh, yeah, uh, I try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the first year at Taiwan, I worked every single day and it was a lot of ramping up and getting used to a new culture environment but then um after this that first year then i started having weekends back and then i started traveling because if you're living in asia you know and in a central hub and you can just hop on the weekends to thailand or indonesia or china japan you know so i love traveling and um and so when I was in Taiwan, I made it an effort to check off all the countries that I wanted to go to before I moved back. And recently, I just got back from a trip to London and Edinburgh, Scotland, which is great. And so, yeah, that's my that's my passion. So how many countries have you traveled so far? Oh, I haven't counted. Dozens, but maybe. <laughs> no, maybe not. More than 30, for more sure. More than 30, wow. That's, that's quite a bit. That's quite a bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. All right, Dr. Wang, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's truly an honor and privilege to be the first woman that you invited. That is true. I've been trying to reach out uh, (laughs) to so many people, um, but you were the first to answer. So thank you for being with us. (laughs) No, thank you. I had a blast. Thank you. Did you like this podcast? Please leave us a review on iTunes so others can find out about it. Did you not like something? Please drop me an email. Also, if you'd like someone to be on the show, or if you have anything to say at all, send me an email. My email address is chipchat at fastmail.com. Again, it's chipchat at fastmail.com. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Solid State Circuit Society. Please check out sscs.ieee.org to become a member. Thank you.